Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow doubtcaster, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. The Dr. Professor Luke Galen is unable to join for this recording, so um, we will sally forth without him. Luckily, we have a couple of other important guests joining us later on, including uh, CFI's Tom Flynn. And we will also be featuring an interview between Ed Brayton and Ion Hersey Ali later on the show. Ed Brayton from the show Declaring Independence and from the blog Dispatches from the Culture Wars was nice enough to share with us an interview he did with Ion Hersey Ali to discuss issues of free speech and blasphemy laws. Which is perfectly timely because we have coming up Blasphemy Day. That's right. Blasphemy Day International 2009 is this month, September 30th. Yep. And speaking of blasphemy, we don't actually believe in blasphemy. Blasphemy is a victimless crime. But the secular equivalent of blasphemy, I would have to say, uh, comes to us from Kirk Cameron, or as the Salon.com article refers to him, the artist formerly known as Mike Seaver. (laughs) From Growing Pains? From Growing Pains. I've heard a couple of puns on that, too, that he's growing to be a pain Uh, more every day. Yeah, Very clever. Well, Luke's not on the show to make lame jokes like that, so So, we have to... Someone's got to do it. Yeah, Kirk Cameron. I, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort. They have the now classic banana video. That's right. Where they explain that the banana is proof of God's existence because it uh, is shaped to fit the human hand. The banana is the atheist nightmare originated as a track. My first experience with Ray Comfort was getting that track placed oh, really? on my car, yes, when I was parked in a Christian university. And Ray Comfort is one of those Christian apologists that, you know, it's hard to even take seriously. We, we try to take them seriously on this show. Mm-hmm. We try not to just ridicule. We try to fairly and accurately represent their position and, and give relevant critiques of it. Ray Comfort barely even registers on our radar as somebody we should have to take on. Yeah, he's, he's, he's no just, William Lane Craig. He's No, no, not at all. He's, he's off in loony land somewhere. Yeah, did he also do the peanut butter argument? Uh, I don't know. Uh, We don't don't see life spontaneously generating in jars of peanut butter, which is proof that evolution is wrong. I've never heard him make that one, but it sounds like one that he would appreciate. You you have heard that argument before, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It shows a keen lack of understanding about preservatives um, (laughs) and mold, actually. But um, generally speaking, uh, Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort offer these really ludicrous arguments like the crocoduck. As evidence, you you don't see a crocodile, a part crocodile, part duck animal, which is proof that evolution didn't happen because yeah. we'd see these kinds of transitional creatures. If, or or if, if human beings really evolved from apes, then at some point a chimpanzee must have given birth to a human being. Yeah, this that's type right. of thing. That's right. Well, then it's so surprising then to hear that Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort are now giving away copies of Origin of the Species, or at least they're planning to give away copies at 50 of America's most prestigious universities. That's right. Charles Darwin's uh, most important work, The Origin of Species. They're going to give it out for free. 50,000 free copies. Well, that's, that's fantastic news, right? Sounds like it. Yeah, but of course not. No, because they've added a little something to it. Yeah, um, a 50-page introduction written by Ray Comfort himself. They know that Origin of the Species is public domain, so they can release it if they want to. They can slap on their own introduction. And, of course, we, we don't even know what the contents of this is yet. But you can tell just from the video that they've posted online right. that it's going to have some of the common accusations. We know some of the content, yeah. I mean, not, not direct quotes, but we know the, the certainly the tenor of it. 
Yes, that there aren't any transitional forms, yep. this creationist myth again. And tying Darwin to Hitler. That's right, and eugenics. Yep, which it doesn't bother me. They're out there ranting and raving about Charles Darwin and have been for decades. But it, it is deceptive to be handing out these copies. And that's the problem. I mean, I don't, I don't mind if they say whatever they want about Darwin, but to do it in free copies of The Origin of Species... Um, which, by the way, has a really nice-looking cover. 150th anniversary edition. And it looks really nice. Yeah, it does. I think I'm going to get a copy of this. Yeah, well, if, especially if it's free. I'm not paying for it. I think this could be counterproductive, though, because Origin of Species is very elegant. Yes. Um, it makes a very clear case. And even today, when we know so much more than Darwin did about mm. evolution, right. you could still read Origin of the Species and find yourself getting excited and amazed at how much evidence there is for natural selection. And how many people read the introductions anyway, especially when it's a 50-page introduction? Like a couple pages, sure, I'll sit and read it. But a 50-page introduction? Be I just want to read the book. Having Ray Comfort open up for Charles Darwin just doesn't seem like that big of a threat. <laughs> no, not really. And, and um, in, there's been a lot of online response to this video of Kirk Cameron explaining the book giveaways. And how can anyone complain about this? We're giving away free books of the origin of species. Okay. How can you complain about these free books? This is your book. This is the book that you love. So we're giving it away free. I think I think the meaning behind saying how can they ban this book? It's Charles Darwin's book. Right. Is that they are actually this is part of their straw man argument that creationism is being banned in general that that Christian rights to free speech and to pray and to talk about the Bible and share the gospel mm -hmm. are under fire nowadays. So I think their kind of paranoia about people criticizing this is kind of a product of their own straw man arguments. Right, right. And and let's actually play the first part of this video starring Kurt Cameron because it's man, it's hard to listen to this without without getting upset. So um, let's listen. Are you concerned about what's happening to our country? One by one, we're being stripped of our God given liberties. Our kids can no longer pray in public. Uh, they can no longer freely open a Bible in school. The Ten Commandments are no longer allowed to be displayed in public places, and the Gideons are not even allowed to give away Bibles in schools. Did you know that a recent study revealed that in the top 50 universities in our country, in the fields of psychology and biology, 61% of the professors describe themselves as atheists or agnostics? That's 61%. No wonder atheism has doubled in the last 20 years among 19 to 25 year olds. An entire generation is being brainwashed by atheistic evolution without even hearing the alternative. And it's radically changing the culture of our nation. That study that Cameron is quoting there, mm -hmm. yes, it does say 61% of the professors describe themselves as atheist or agnostic. But this was in psychology and biology. What we've talked about before on the show is that religious belief or non-belief breaks apart across disciplines That's in right. the academy. Yep. Certain disciplines like psychology, where people learn about the cognitive errors they can make and all sorts of and mistakes certainly in biology. Yes, where you can see clearly that things don't appear to be intelligently designed, yes. But I bet if you took a poll of, of literature professors or engineering, engineering is another yeah, one. It's the, it's the hard sciences where we're seeing that even mathematics, there's a, a larger percentage of or a smaller percentage of non-religious uh, professors. If you were to look at the percentage for college professors overall, that same study showed that only 23.4% declare themselves to be atheists or agnostic. Right. The other things that Kirk Cameron starts off with, d describing how horrible this country has become, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. People aren't allowed to pray in public. Wow, that's that's really misleading. Children are not allowed to open Bibles in schools. Yes, kids are allowed to pray in public. Mm -hmm. They're even allowed to pray in public schools. Absolutely. They're, what we are not allowing to happen is for schools to dictate a prayer, right? To play a scripted prayer and require everyone to join in. I mean that that is what has been banned. Nobody's banning children from praying in public. 
Right, and also displays of the Ten Commandments in public. Public displays are all over the place of the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer and whatever else. You could have it in your store. You can have it Absolutely. in your church. Oh, man. Every time I go into a store and they have a Jesus fish on the sign or in the window or something, that worries me a little bit. I think, will they accept my money? Uh, it says, in God we trust on it, so probably. There's only one place where it's contentious to put these religious displays up at all, and that's on government. On government property, not public uh, but the way the, the way the law and the courts have interpreted it, it's kind of okay in certain contexts to do that anyway. So, in God we trust is all over the place. Um, so in the one area where Cameron might be speaking accurately, he's he's still, he's still getting not. it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but these the, the the charges that he throws out there, these have got to freak out his way of the master followers here. But when you really look at it, he's absolutely misrepresenting the truth. And the thing that's so offensive about this is there are places in the world where that's not the case. There are places where people um, are not allowed to freely exercise their religion. We have a constitution that tells you you can Right. And the government can do nothing to stop you to freely exercise your religion. But to Cameron and to Ray Comfort, our culture has fallen into such an abyss of Darwinistic atheism that there's only this small righteous remnant of Christians remaining. Well, if you want a really good refutation of that, mm -hmm. basically if an entire generation really was being brainwashed by atheistic evolution – then I'd be able to see the film creation here in America. That's right. Yeah, this um, this is actually one I've been looking forward to for quite a while. Um, it's the story of Charles Darwin and his wife, Emma. That's right. It's directed by Oscar-winning producer Jeremy Thomas. And it stars uh, Paul Bettany and his real-life wife, Jennifer Connelly, with whom I share a birthday. I had no idea they were married in real life. Yeah. I really like Jennifer Connelly quite a bit. I've She's been a fan of her since The Rocketeer. <laughs> okay, so going way I, back. I really like Paul Bettany, too. He's, he's yeah. wonderful, and he is um, openly atheist. You know, this isn't the first time he's played Charles Darwin, in, in, in a sense. I did not know that. <laughs> Have you seen Master and Commander with— um, Oh, that's right, with Russell Crowe. That's right. Um, ship Battle. He plays the naturalist on the ship. That's he's right. He's not technically Charles Darwin. He's— plays a surgeon, but they end up going to the Galapagos, mm -hmm. and this is before Darwin's voyage on the Beagle, right. and he goes off on the island and looks at all these animals and Finds starts- the finches and yes, all that and sort he of would have, it, The idea is he would have discovered Darwin's theory if he hadn't been pulled back into battle, but he played anyway. a great Darwin even in that film, so yes. I can't wait to see him in a film that where he's actually playing Darwin. But unfortunately, this movie cannot find a U.S. distributor. That's right. It's opening everywhere else. It's chosen to open the Toronto Film Festival. Yes. I mean, this, it's going to be in England. Right. It's going to be, yeah. As Jeremy Thomas, the producer of the film, says, it's got a deal everywhere else in the world but in the United States. And it's because of what the film is about. People have been saying this is the best film they've seen all year, yet nobody in the U.S. has picked it up. And it's not – this is by no means, from what I understand – um, both of the movie and the story of Charles Darwin, this is not an atheistic movie. Uh, what happened with, with Darwin's life, and I'm, I, I understand it's depicted fairly well in the film, is um, obviously as he was making his discoveries, it started to kind of pull him away from, from his religious beliefs. He, he had conflict there. His wife, Emma, was quite religious. So this became a real issue for them, and she didn't want him to publish and, and that sort of thing. Initially. Initially. And then when their daughter died at a young age, this really shook both of them. And what it did was force both of them further in the directions where they were going. But it also somehow, and this is talked about in the book Charles and Emma, and I forget the name of the author, but it brought them closer together and really helped them see each other's perspective, even though Emma became more religious and Charles became less so with the death of their beloved daughter. So if that's the angle of the story they're going to be playing up, and if you watch the trailer, it certainly seems like that's the theme that they're going to be... It's, it's about this, this yeah. conflict, this discussion, this debate about 
um, can you be religious and believe in the tenets of evolution? And how do you deal with loved ones? Right. Who- in other words, it sounds like the exact opposite of a propagandistic yes. atheist screed against religion. Rather, it's going to be a pretty balanced look at the way people deal with these issues. The Hollywood Reporter even said that it would be, quote, a great shame if those with religious convictions spurn the film out of hand as they will find it even-handed and wise. And that's from Hollywood. (laughs) Godless Hollywood. But um, this movie, which is an intelligent, thoughtful, thought-provoking film, can't find someone to show it in America. Passion of the Christ, sure. We'll open that up, we'll slap it with an R rating, and we'll still let little kids go to see it because it's a religious experience for them. But something that actually looks at both sides and deals with the discussion, no. No room for that. Well, film distributors know that they need to appeal to a very wide market, and in America, only 39% of Americans will profess belief in the theory of evolution. Right. we got to do something to find a pirated copy of this. Oh, for sure. We've got listeners from from elsewhere in the world. I'm not I'm not <laughs> suggesting anyone do anything illegal, but you know, if you got creative and somehow we ended up being able to see the movie, that's that's fine. You know, I'm I, not going to object. I'd, I'd send Jeremy Thomas and his production studio uh, um, a good chunk of change. Uh, sure, <laughs> sure. We wouldn't be competing with anybody else. Let's do a showing in Grand Rapids. Or if they get us an interview with Paul Bettany and Jennifer Connolly. <laughs> there you go. Hey, we don't even need the movie then. <laughs> I'd, I'd talk to her about The Rocketeer, but, you know, it'd still be nice to have them them here. But uh, hopefully by the time uh, you are even listening to this This film has found a distributor and will be available, if not widely, at least somewhere in the U.S. And, of course, eventually it'll come out on DVD and we'll be able to to see it here. But I want to see it now. Sick of sitting through crappy movies. Give me a good one. Well, movieguide.org, a Christian film review website. Oh, yeah. This is a great site. Has already ruled that it is a blasphemous film. Have they seen it? (laughs) Good question. Because because sometimes they don't, and sometimes they give um, fairly even reviews. Like sometimes they will call something blasphemous, but still say that it's a really good movie. <laughs> hey, I happen to agree. They ha- yeah, absolutely. They have a very very interesting rating system over there. But well, speaking of blasphemy, mm-hmm. as we mentioned earlier, International Blasphemy Day is September thirtieth. Yes, and we, you and I, Dave. We're actually going to be speaking at a Blasphemy Day event here in Grand Rapids. Well, just outside of Grand Rapids. That's right. We're going to be at Grand Valley State University Thursday, actually. They're having their Blasphemy Day event a day late, but they're going to be having that on October 1st. And you and I are going to be there talking about blasphemy laws. And we'll be joined by by Ed Brayton. There will be stand-up comedians there. There's going to be a panel discussion on the role of ridicule in free speech. Hmm. And we certainly invite anybody who's in the area to check it out. If you want to learn more, go to www.cfimichigan.org, and there will be information there. Uh, You can also check it out on our website, www.doubtcast.org, and we'll give you all the links on where to find out about it there. And now, for more information on Blasphemy Day and its origins, we're going to talk to Tom Flynn from the Center for Inquiry. With us on the show today is Tom Flynn. Tom Flynn is the editor of Free Inquiry magazine and also the editor of the New Encyclopedia of Unbelief. Thanks for joining us on the show, Tom. Oh, my pleasure, Jeremy. Great to be here. September 30th is Blasphemy Day, International Blasphemy Day. But the story of Blasphemy Day goes back several years earlier to September 30th, 2005. This is when the Danish newspapers ran those cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, which created such a stir and controversy. And even here in the United States, it was controversial as well. And you personally got to be involved <laughs> Because you are the editor of Free Inquiry magazine, and Free Inquiry was – was it the only publication or one of the only publications that ran those cartoons here in America? Uh, 
in our April-May 2006 issue, we republished four of the 12 cartoons, and at the time we did that, we were the only national publication in the United States to have done so. Uh, there had been a couple of the student newspapers and things along that line, and uh, uh, a very specialized libertarian magazine had run some, but uh, uh, we're, we're a national magazine with a circulation of around 25,000, and we were the first national U.S. publication to publish even four of the cartoons, and this became quite a controversial action in its own right. Uh, uh, the Borders bookstore chain... Uh, declined to shelve that edition and uh, uh, took quite a, a shellacking for that from uh, newspaper editorials and particularly in the blogosphere. This was a time when they, uh, the power of the blogs as a means of expressing public indignation was just starting to come into focus. I think it really came as a surprise, certainly I think it did to the folks at Borders, how much indignation came their way from the blog world because they had censored free inquiry and how effective that criticism was. Uh, now, actually, the, the controversy continued for a while longer because the uh, conglomerate that controls about 80% of the bookstores in Canada heard about this a little late. They had put our issue with the cartoons out on the shelves. Uh, so then they decided to censor the following issue, okay. which had nothing more controversial in it than you know our usual round of you know secular humanist opinion and news, uh, and uh, they in turn wound up uh, taking a pretty good drubbing at the hands of uh, Canadian pundits and Canadian bloggers. So uh, uh, now the interesting part of this was through it all we had been in pretty regular contact with staff members at Harper's Magazine, hmm. who I. Th think we're interested in seeing from day to day whether if they called us we were still there. And uh, uh, of course we, we survived with flying colors. In fact, the, the irony of this is because a number of independent newsstands signed on with us because of the attention we'd attracted, uh, we actually wound up with more magazines on more newsstands after the uh, controversies with Barnes & Noble and with the Canadian retailers than we'd had beforehand. And then about four months after, uh, Harper's came out with uh, an issue where the cover story was a lengthy report on the cartoon controversy by the uh, Pulitzer-winning cartoonist uh, Art Spiegelman. In that issue of Harper's, they reprinted the exact newspaper spread, which included the original 12 cartoons, as the Danish newspaper had printed it. And then they printed each of the cartoons again, and uh, Art Spiegelman, probably you know, the world's most distinguished cartoonist, analyzed and critiqued each one of the 12 cartoons and rated it for its offensiveness on a scale of one to five fatwa bombs. <laughs> and uh, just, just as a demonstration of equal time, uh, Spiegelman, who is himself Jewish, and of course he won his Pulitzer for uh, graphic novel Mouse, which was an allegorical retelling of the Holocaust with uh, uh, mice playing the Jewish characters and cats playing the Nazis. Well, just to even everything out, Spiegelman added to his piece in Harper's the most viciously anti-Semitic cartoon that he could possibly dream up. And then it turned out that Harper's got thrown off the shelves, I believe, in Canada because of this. And at least officially, it wasn't because they reprinted the, uh, the Muhammad cartoons. It was because this anti-Semitic cartoon designed by the world's most honored Jewish cartoonist was too offensive. <laughs> well, an exercise in missing the point. Precisely. And this really brought it home to us. I think one of the reasons why uh, we got involved in uh, uh, helping to organize Blasphemy Day and in sponsoring uh, events related to it through uh, the Center for Inquiry's Campaign for Free Expression. This really brought home to us how many people miss the point, how mm -hmm. broadly, and in a way that's so erosive to civil liberties in controversies like this. Free Inquiry's decision to run the cartoons uh, was and remains controversial even within the secular humanist community. You know, I'll still talk to people who 
will say that, oh, you shouldn't have done that, or, uh, you know, we mentioned in some of our promotional materials, because, of course, we, we take great pride in having taken mm-hmm. this stand. And, uh, you know, we'll hear from people who will get one of our packages in the mail or look at our website and write back and say, you know, you shouldn't, uh, that, that was a terrible thing to do to the world's Muslims, you shouldn't do that. And our response to that is that uh, if we're serious about freedom of expression, well, as, as the old saying goes, freedom of speech doesn't matter until you extend it to speech that offends you. And if we're serious about freedom of expression, part of the Western cultural compact, if you will, is that uh, each of us maintains the freedom to express ourselves in any way we find appropriate uh, with the understanding that everyone else has the same freedom and from time to time we may be offended and that's the price of living in a free society that is a uh, historically western conception it is rooted in the western enlightenment and uh, people coming from other cultures uh, may differ in their uh, you know comfort level with that and certainly a lot of people coming out of the muslim world are genuinely very uncomfortable with that but that's you know, that's one of the rules that has made our free society the dynamic and creative thing that it is. And there's been a growing pressure from, on the whole, lots of very well-meaning people to say, no, we should restrict ourselves. We shouldn't talk, we shouldn't engage in speech that might offend people of certain ideologies or certain religions. We should restrict ourselves. And of course, the question there is. Where does that end? Mm-hmm. The, you know, we didn't build the society we have today by censoring ourselves in advance because something we might say would be might be offensive to some group or other. And if we now impose that standard on ourselves, we're taking away one of the things that was fundamental to our culture. And uh, uh, I, I think we would impoverish our society in the course of doing that. And it's not just about suppressing our own speech now. Governments have gotten involved in this too. The reaction by most of the world and and especially in some European countries was to use the protests over these cartoons to push forward through laws that would criminalize blasphemy, including the UN Human Rights Council, which adopted a resolution that condemned defamation of religion. Oh, I, I think there's no question that free speech is at risk. And again, I want to stress that uh, many of the people who are pressing for what amount to modern-day blasphemy laws and the UN Human Rights Council and in other venues you know, have the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. But they're not seeing, I, in my opinion, they're not seeing uh, the larger picture, and they're overlooking the degree to which it's really an essential building block of our society that uh, people have the right to express themselves and that a certain degree of uh, vulnerability to offense is something we all share. You can speak your mind, I can speak my mind, uh, I may offend you, you may offend me, and in that we're all equal. I think it's, it's very unfortunate that there has been this growing movement, uh, certainly centered in Europe, but not not by any means restricted to Europe, to make the defamation of religion a crime, or to outlaw more broadly uh, any speech that any particular group may find defensive. Now, I think there are two terrible problems with that. One we've already touched on, uh, which is the idea of the, the individual right to free expression, the other aspect of this that I, it, in a lot of ways is even more disturbing, uh, if we're going to adopt an international standard under which communication that may offend a particular religious community is outlawed, and if we're dealing, as we are often in the case of Islam, uh, with a religion that is part of a universal theocratic state that exercises not only religious but political and social control uh, within a great many Muslim countries. Well, if you live in one of those Muslim countries and you want to fight for women's rights or you want to fight for democracy or you're going to be a dissident in any way, 
anything you might say against the established order can be interpreted as speaking out against Islam. Mm -hmm. And what a frightening world that would be, uh, and arguably we're already beginning to live in that world, uh, where someone can be crusading for freedom in, you know, Saudi Arabia or, you know, women's rights in, uh, you know, the, the Emirates or something like that, and be disapproved of in the Western world because, oh, this person is speaking critically of Islam. The international community should be a resource and a support to people who are campaigning for liberalizing change in these countries, not uh, a part of the chorus that's disapproving of them. So people are speaking out against this. People are trying to raise awareness of blasphemy laws internationally and the threat that they could pose to free expression. Tell me more about what CFI is doing to help organize and, and support International Blasphemy Day. First off, let me say that blasphemy is one small but important part of the larger campaign for free expression. But it's certainly a flashpoint issue because uh, uh, blasphemy, and the dictionary definition of blasphemy, is the act of denying or scoffing at God or God's alleged attributes. And certainly that's something that uh, religious believers from a large number of traditions uh, find genuinely offensive. But on the other hand, you know, as I mentioned, the, the, the ruling principle here is that uh, a commitment to freedom of speech is most meaningful when we protect speech that we abhor. If we're serious about freedom of speech, that means even defending speech that we may not like. And so that is the challenge that uh, we from the humanist community present to religious believers. Uh, that there are great social values from having a community, a society, in which individuals who feel the need to express themselves in that way can go so far as to blaspheme, and that should be protected. So what we're, uh, what we're doing is uh, not holding up blasphemy necessarily as an ideal, but saying that whatever else you may think about it, blasphemy is and remains a human right. And we're going to be uh, uh, doing a number of things. We have uh, just recently announced a blasphemy contest, a free expression essay contest in which uh, students uh, enrolled in an accredited college or university are invited to submit an essay about the importance of free expression and its limits, if any. We're looking for entries to be received by January 5th, and there will be a $2,000 prize. Uh, we're doing a, uh, a blasphemy contest. Now, the, the uh, uh, deadline for this is coming up much sooner. This is a deadline of October 1st, 2009. And basically, to enter this blasphemy contest, all you have to do is create a phrase, a poem, or statement that would be or would have been considered blasphemous. Basically, compose a blasphemous slogan. And uh, we, we don't have a $2,000 prize, but the top five winners will receive Center for Inquiry T-shirts with their submission printed on the shirt. Uh, the first-place winner will receive a mug imprinted with the winning phrase, recognition with, in Free Inquiry magazine, and we hasten to add eternal damnation. <laughs> uh, and, of course, that, that may be the greatest honor of all for the successful blasphemer. Now, down the road in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be introducing yet a third component, uh, which is a cartoon contest. We'll have two competitions, one for uh, professional cartoonists, newspaper cartoonists, Internet cartoonists, what have you, and one for amateurs for uh, best blasphemous cartoon. This will be judged by professional cartoonists, and we'll be, we'll be announcing the details of that program uh, probably in about two weeks. But I think the really important point here, this is not about blasphemy for its own sake. This is not about tweaking religious people for the fun of doing it. The real point here is that freedom of expression is only deeply meaningful in contexts that really ruffle people's feathers. Mm -hmm. And the way we protect that right is by using it by practicing free expression, by practicing free expression 
even in sensitive matters, even in controversial matters, even in matters that some people find offensive, uh, because those are the real hard cases. If you live in a society where those rights of expression are not protected, then you live in a society where free expression is not protected, and we don't want to live in that society. Now, where can our listeners go to learn more about Center for Inquiries? campaign for free expression? Uh, well, they can go to the uh, Center for Inquiry website. That's uh, Center for Inquiry, all one word, dot net. People would like to enter the blasphemy contest. Uh, that's Now, this is a difficult email address. Blasphemy contest at Center for Inquiry dot net. And uh, if people would like to uh, get more information on the essay contest, that's essay contest at centerforinquiry.net. Okay, it looks like you've made it pretty simple to figure out. We we try to make it to, we try to make it as as clear and easy as we can. Well, thank you again for joining us on Reasonable Doubts and good luck this blasphemy day. Well, thank you very much. Well, thanks to Tom Flynn for joining us here on the show. Lots of good information from Tom Flynn, as always. I always enjoy talking to him. Yeah, except when it's about Christmas, in which case he (laughs) he makes my inner child weep. But uh, anyway. Yes, moving on. um, We are now going to play for you an interview that Ed Brayton did. Ed Brayton, who will be joining us once again Mm -hmm. for Blasphemy Day celebration at Grand Valley State University on October 1st. Check out more details at our website, www.doubtcast.org. Ed Brayton got to interview Ion Hersey Ali. A blasphemer of some note. About her book, Infidel, mm-hmm. and the story of her experience growing up as a woman in a highly fundamentalist Islamic environment. Mm-hmm. And her eventual escape from that environment and embrace of certain principles such as free speech, freedom of conscience, and all the work she's done in that area since. So thanks again to Ed Brayton for sharing this interview. Mm -hmm. And and be sure to check out his show as well, Declaring Independence, which you can find on iTunes or you can listen to it on WPRR 1680 AM in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Or listen to it on our website, www.publicrealityradio.org. It's a great show. It really is. Mm -hmm. um, Very informative. Talks about all sorts of issues in science, law, and culture. Yes. So here it is, uh, Ed Brayton with Ion Hersey Ali. Uh, Ms. Ali, thank you very much for making a little time for us today. Um, I'm happy to, and I'm grateful that you have me on air. Uh, my radio show deals frequently with issues of uh, religious skepticism and the promotion of rationalism. Uh, so I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your experiences and how they relate to those issues. Um, it has long concerned me that there is a, a faction of the American left that believes that it's wrong to criticize radical Islam and to assert the superiority of liberal democratic values. I know this is something that's concerned you as well and that you've written about. Uh, give us your perspective on that split uh, on the left between, for lack of better terms, the secular rational left and the sort of multiculturalist relativist left? Um, I find it ironic that the left of all groups would be tolerant of radical Islam and its uh, pernicious manifestations and be extremely intolerant of the mildest, most friendly forms of Christianity and Judaism and so on. Uh, I was confronted with, or rather my skepticism is born out of being and brought up as a Muslim. Uh, And the the thing that stung me as a practicing, praying, worshipping Muslim was the position that I, just because I was a female, I was considered to be dumb, I was considered to be uh, useless except to be a mother and a wife. I was considered to be subservient, and I was assumed to follow all of that, and there was absolutely no equality, and my skepticism of my own, the religion of my own parents came out of that. And yeah. When I came to the West and I found 
the left-wing groups, I learned of their history as fighting for the underdog. And I was, I'm always, I find it ironic if the underdog is the working class, if the underdog is the slave, if the underdog is the male slave, it's all fine. But if it's the Muslim woman, then we ought to respect Islam. And I just, it's just a logic that I can't get over. I don't think that's true of the entire left, but I think there are some factions there that you've described accurately, and that fact has always disturbed me as well. You wrote a book called The Caged Virgin, an Emancipation Proclamation for Women in Islam. Give us your perspective based on your own experiences within the Islamic world and how the values held by many in that religion are stand in stark contrast to liberal notions of freedom and equality, particularly for women. My experience starts with separating the space of men from the space of women. Men have the role of being the father, the breadwinner, uh, the protector of the family, the maintainer. And women are the wives and the sisters, and, you know, they're supposed to obey and serve him. And th- that, I think, is something that in all religions, probably in all human arrangements, is uh, recognized. But Islam takes it deeper and more. Uh, you know, Sharia law says, my testimony is worth half of that of a man. That's crazy because if I'm raped, my testimony is worth half of that of the rapist. I can be divorced at will. I inherit half of what my brother inherits. Uh, I can be, you know, forced into marriage as of the age of nine, as of the age of menstruation. These are all arrangements that you don't see in other religions and in other cultures. And so that was my first experience with it. I lived in Saudi Arabia, and I have seen what it is, how women look like when they're completely covered in black clothing, when they're forbidden from going outside the house when they're denied education uh, all of that and then I came to the Netherlands and in a free liberal country in a secular country like the Netherlands where almost everything is possible as long as you don't harm others I found small communities of Muslims where women lived as if they were under the reign of the Taliban and so that's a different perspective of my experience. I was now a free woman in Holland as of 1992 and witnessing how women simply because they were labeled Muslim were condemned to a position where they were oppressed completely, where they were slaves, their rights were taken away in a free country. And the strangest thing was that the free peoples were either ignoring this or justifying it in the name of culture and religion. I've been arguing for a long time that it's important that the left take the lead in criticizing radical Islam in a manner at least close to what Christopher Hitchens has done um, in this country. Now, I don't happen to agree with him in the war in Iraq, but I I strongly agree with him that the left needs to be at the forefront of making a a coherent critique of of reactionary Islam because if we allow the right to do so, then that criticism will often be accompanied by a sort of Christian chauvinism or American exceptionalism. And I saw a statement from you where, where you <clears throat> told an interviewer that, that we essentially faced a choice between Islamic fascism and right-wing fascism because if, if as liberals we fail to respond to this, it will inevitably lead to the right-wing fascists responding to it in a far worse way. Uh, explain that position. Um, it is the same position that Christopher Hitchens takes, and I think Hitchens is brave, he's caring, he's committed, and he's consistent. He is one of the first people within the left, and the most determined voices within the left, who says he's not going to go out there saying Christian fundamentalism is bad if he cannot say the same of Islamic fundamentalism, which, by the way, today, in the 21st century, is more relevant. Yeah, and I would strongly agree with that. I think that um, <clears throat> that uh, you know, modern Christianity and modern modern Islam are not equally dangerous. Christianity, while it still includes much that I object to, uh, has been humanized by contact with Enlightenment principles over the last few centuries. Uh, and there are voices in Islam, people like Muqtadar Khan, who are calling for the same sort of thing within Islam—a reconciliation between. Um, those ancient traditions, but being informed by modern ideas of liberty and equality and justice. How likely do you think it is that Islam can achieve that kind of mixture the way Christianity has, at least to some extent? Well, reconciliation, in my view, is achieved.
achievable only and only if Muslims give up following the example of the Prophet Muhammad in every way, if they question him, interview his teachings and his morals, so that everything that Muhammad said that is inconsistent with democracy, with freedom, with respecting the liberty of individuals, the sexuality of both men and women, only then will there be any kind of reconciliation. As a liberal, I'm not prepared to compromise my rights and freedoms, and I'm not prepared to compromise the rights and freedoms of my fellow human beings. And as long as that is the case, and the Muslims do not want to you know, compromise what Muhammad told them, then we're going to be in a perpetual state of conflict. How likely is that? It depends on who gives up first, and I'm not prepared to compromise life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You, there certainly are some groups within Islam that are, are sort of making an effort to do that. Um, and do you think that it's the United States that should be reaching out to those groups who have accepted the values of liberal democracy and build bridges to them and ally with them Absolutely. against the radicals, or do you think that's sort of futile? Absolutely. I think we should reach out to any individual within Islam and outside of Islam who is seriously prepared to compromise the teachings of jihad, of misogyny, of separating the world into infidels and Muslims, calling Jews pigs and Christians monkeys. If they want to come, anybody within the Muslim world who wants to compromise that, leave that behind, uh, is, should be applauded and should be encouraged and helped and uh, included into everything that freedom has to offer. Um, I, I really appreciate your call for, for, for not compromising on this. And, and one of the things that I've, I've enjoyed reading you in the past is that you've spoken out very passionately on the subject that I care a great deal about, which is free speech, the right to offend. Yes. Uh, in 2006, uh, when I, speaking about the Danish caricatures of Muhammad and the spasm of violence that took place following their publishing, you said, and I'm going to quote you here directly, I do not seek to offend religious sentiment, but I will not submit to tyranny. Demanding that people who do not accept Muhammad's teachings should refrain from drawing him is not a request for respect, but a demand for submission. Yes. Uh, now, I published those caricatures on my blog, and I encourage others to do the same. Tell us why you think it's so important to stand up in the face of those threats of violence and refuse to submit to them. If we don't stand up to those threats, let me put it differently. If we stand up to those threats, we may win. If we do not, then we lose, and tyranny overtakes us all. And the same thing has happened in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, in Pakistan, in Egypt, anywhere where the principles of Islam have become the principles of political and social rule, that tyranny has manifested itself. And the first people, the first group to suffer are women. And I think that if you say... We are going to accommodate them for the sake of a temporary peace now, then either we or our children will have to deal with a society that resembles very much like the society in Iran. Um, let me get your sense. Of, you don't, as I understand it, you, you are back living in Denmark now? No, I live in the United States. Oh, you are back in the United States now. Okay, I, yeah. I was out of date on that. Um, obviously, you pay attention to goings on in our political system. Give us your assessment of, of our new president, Barack Obama, and how you think he's going to deal with these issues. Well, like everyone else, I'm very enthusiastic about his election. And I just came from Europe two days ago and saw how, you know, I've never seen Europeans so positive about America as after the election and inauguration of Barack Obama. And... I hope, and I listened to his um, victory speech, his integration speech, and I think it, it's a beautiful speech. It is a vision, and the world is looking out to see what he does. America is looking out to, what, to see what he does. But Barack Obama is 
the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, and he must, I find, cash in on all the support that's coming in from Europe and elsewhere to defend the principles of freedom. Yeah, that certainly is, is, is my hope as well. Uh, I'm glad to hear that you're back in the United States um, and, and glad to hear that you're here speaking out. I can't wait to see you speak tomorrow morning. Um, and uh, let me ask you one more question. You, at one point you were working on a book, um, and, and it may be out, I may have simply missed it, about the Prophet Muhammad waking up in the New York Public Library <laughs> and being confronted by, uh, among others, John Stuart Mill, who, as you had said, was one of your favorite liberal thinkers. He is one of my favorite thinkers of all time as well. Is that a book that you ever finished? I'm not finished. I'm still working on it. Okay. Um, it is it is scheduled to be published in 2010. And that was called Shortcuts to the Enlightenment? Right? Sh- Shortcuts to Enlightenment, okay. yes. It's a dialogue. It's a dialogue between Muhammad and three of my favorite thinkers. One is John Stuart Mill, and Muhammad and Mill will talk about women and the position of women in society. Karl Popper and Muhammad will talk about tribalism versus the open society. Muhammad will defend the tribal order, and Karl Popper will defend the open society. And the third thinker is called Friedrich Hayek, and he will defend individualism, and where Muhammad will defend collectivism. And I hope um, that the readers find it interesting and uh, join in the debate. And I think, and I hope it leads to a discussion among Muslims and within the Muslim world. Yeah, certainly, you know, those thinkers are, are, you know, a big part of our Western heritage and I think elucidate a very, very clear um, uh, philosophy of, of valuing the rights of the individual. And that, I think, is really the key to present that as an alternative to the to the vision of radical Islam. Um, Ms. Ali, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I know you're very busy, and I appreciate you taking the time to be on our show. Thank you very much. All right, thanks once again to Ed Brayton for letting us use part of his interview with Ion Hersey Ali. Thanks to Tom Flynn for joining us on the show today. Thanks for Kirk Cameron for generally giving us something to complain about. <laughs> And that's going to do it for us this week. In the meantime, please find us on our new forum, doubtcast.forummotion, that's one M in the middle, .net. On our website at www.doubtcast.org, find us on Twitter, Zazzle, or Facebook at slash doubtcast. Until next time, stay rational. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>